don't have a Bible, we want you to have a Bible. There are men coming up the aisles right now, and if you just get their attention in some way, they'll get a Bible to you. I want you to be able to hear the Word, but then also to see it with your own eyes and, uh, and enjoy the passage with, with the Lord that way. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 1. Then, six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he held the money box for the group, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial, for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much this morning for your word, and we never want to turn to your word independent of you and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We know that this passage is in your book for a reason. It's supposed to accomplish something in our lives and we want Lord to receive your thought your intent behind this passage into our spirit and into the totality of our lives and so we ask for that ministry of your Holy Spirit right now in this place through your word teach us Lord about what is on your heart and on your mind and what it is that you have for us as our Heavenly Father we lift our time up in your word to you And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 1, I I don't want to get technical to begin the study, but I I really do think it would be better best if that had been kind of included in chapter eleven, because the events that begin to occur in verse two of this particular chapter, we know from parallel accounts of the same incident in, in the other, uh, other Gospels, that this event occurred two days before Jesus' uh, death upon the cross for our sins. And I believe what John is bringing out here by the Holy Spirit in verse 1 is kind of setting a context for Jesus being in the area of the city of Bethany for the final six days of his life, the final week of his life when he was in Jerusalem, uh, he never spent the night in Jerusalem. He spent every night in Bethany uh, with, with friends in, in that city. So this event that we read about here occurs literally just a couple of days before his death upon the cross in Jerusalem. In the parallel account in, in Matthew's Gospel, we're told that Following his teaching of the Olivet 
discourse to his disciples, he reminded the disciples that he was going to uh, die very soon, that he would be crucified and that he would be maltreated, not by some gang in Jerusalem, but by the highest religious officials in uh, professing Judaism at the time, that he would be beaten and that he would be crucified at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus had told this, them this several times in the course of his public ministry, but maybe they needed to hear it again because on the day that Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse, speaking of the end times to his disciples, that day began early in the morning where he was in the courtyard of the temple and he began to teach and as he taught a gigantic crowd established itself around him. And the Jewish religious leaders, the three main sects of Judaism at that time, were so threatened by his popularity that each one in turn sent representatives to try and ask Jesus a question, a controversial question, in public in order to uh, get him to stumble in some way, split his support, and somehow blunt his growing popularity. And Jesus handled their attempts to trap him so readily, so easily, that not only did he escape their traps, but he then in turn trapped them in the questions that they were asking, that maybe the disciples got into their minds the idea that, wow, maybe things, the tables are turning here and Jesus is going to kind of regain the upper hand here and he won't be crucified after all here in Jerusalem during this week. And so Jesus reminds them of the fact that this is indeed going to occur. Now ultimately his crucifixion takes his disciples completely by surprise. Not because he hadn't warned them of it, but because they were just careless hearers related to it. But there is someone, there were people and someone in this passage that did listen to him speak of the suffering that was coming, his death that was coming, and not only listened to him but took seriously what he was saying and not only took seriously what he was saying but entered into the emotion of what it is that he said. Entered in, in terms of compassion, in terms of what he must be feeling as a result of, of what lay before him. In Matthew's account, again, we're told that at this very time, the Jewish religious leaders, the very highest of them, representatives of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, Caiaphas himself, the high priest, members of the Sanhedrin, all of them united together with one goal to put together some kind of a plot some means by which they might kill Jesus. They wanted Jesus dead at this point. Every time he opened his mouth, every time he taught, every time he did a miracle, every time he did anything, his life, his teaching, what he was about was so different from what they were about, though they claimed to represent God, that it, was, it exposed them for the unspiritual things that they were. And so their solution, instead of repenting and changing and becoming like Christ, was to put Him to death. They had a problem, though, in this. And the problem was, was that Jesus was wildly popular among the common people. 
And there is at this time the feast, Jewish feast of Passover, which we're told from Josephus, the historian, that the population of Jerusalem would explode to somewhere well over a million people as the pilgrims would come in from all over the world, Jewish pilgrims, to uh, participate in the feast of Passover. So you've got this huge number of people that know Jesus, they're curious about Jesus, he's very, very popular, and they're afraid if they put him to death, while there's that size of a crowd in Jerusalem, that what it's going to do it has the potential that if they are known to be behind his death, to create a riot or to create an uproar in the city. So their intent was to put him to death after the Feast of Passover when things had kind of quieted down in Jerusalem and it could be done a, a little more silently. But they're not in control of Jesus' life or this situation. God is in control of that and, and their plans are not going to work out exactly the way that they wanted them to. Uh, the coming cross, this murderous attitude of the Jewish religious leaders toward Jesus, the knowledge that Jesus has that one among his twelve, one among the disciples, is going to betray him literally in a matter of hours after pouring his life uh, into this man. All of this combined together weighed very, very heavily upon Jesus. But in the passage, in contrast to all of this violence, and, and it, it, coming violence, and all of this opposition and hatred is the act of a lone woman, a devoted disciple and worshiper whose act of devotion to the Lord blessed the heart of Jesus greatly. He's in the city of Bethany, we're told in verses 1 and 2, just two miles from Jerusalem, just a stone's throw, almost literally, well, a little further than a stone's throw for most of us. But it's within the eyeshot if it weren't for the Mount of Olives. It's the city of Bethany, two miles on the eastern side of, of Jerusalem, on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Matthew's Gospel tells us that these events occurred in the home of a man by the name of Simon, who used to be a leper. We don't know anything more about him, except that we can surmise that at one time he was a leper. Evidently, Jesus had cleansed him of his leprosy. And in gratitude for what Jesus had done in his life, he makes his home available for the hosting of this feast or this meal for Jesus. We know that in Bethany, there's a famous two sisters and brother that lived in the city of Bethany, Lazarus the brother, Martha and Mary the sisters, and they hosted Jesus frequently in their house in Bethany. But for some reason, this meal that he's at is hosted in uh, Simon's house. Maybe Simon's house had a little bit more room to handle uh, kind of a larger group that was there. Jesus isn't alone this, with this woman or even with, with Simon, uh, the former leper. We also know that Mary is there, Lazarus is there, Martha is there, the twelve disciples are there. So we've got a pretty good-sized group in an ancient home in Bethany, 17 people at least. Again in verse 2, the gathering was for the purpose of making Jesus a supper. Uh, Martha is busy serving. You put her anywhere, she's going to serve. But this time, no complaining. And I love it about Martha. I love every, I love every Christian. 
But I especially love every Christian that continues to grow. And here is a sister in the Lord that continued to grow. When she was rebuked way back earlier in, in uh, Jesus' ministry, when she was complaining about the fact that her sister Mary wasn't helping her in the kitchen while she was making the tuna sandwiches or putting together the St. Peter's fish or whatever it was that she's making for lunch, but that Mary found a place at Jesus' feet and was listening to Him declare the Word of God. And she came in and she basically rebukes Jesus over the whole situation. And Jesus then very kindly rebuked her back and set her in her place about first things first and what's most important. And we see her now. A Martha is going to serve, but now no complaining. I hope that you and I Don't judge any Christian we know by what they were three years ago or one year ago or one month ago or one week ago. This God that we serve is working in our lives with so strongly and when we're willing with such swiftness in terms of how He changes and how He moves, we can be a different person altogether by the week, by the day. And so here she is wonderfully serving and and serving with the right attitude. And Lazarus, who's been raised from the dead, is fellowshipping with Jesus at the table. And then following the supper in verse 3, we're told that Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. Matthew's gospel informs us that she anointed Jesus' head with it. And here we discover that she also anointed his feet. This Mary, sometimes it's hard to keep track of all the Marys in the Bible, but this Mary is Mary of Bethany. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. The value of the oil that she pours on Jesus' head and then upon his feet, we know from Judas's protest, uh, there in, in uh, a little bit in verse 5 there, we know the value of it was 300 denarii. A denarii was the daily wage of a laboring man, a blue-collar worker. So she takes almost a year's wage of a blue-collar worker. That's the value of this oil of spikenard that she pours out on Jesus' head and upon his feet. Now you take what, I, I don't know, we're talking about something that she, when she pours it out, that has a value of tens and tens of thousands of dollars. What is a, a laboring man? What is a blue-collar worker? Don't shout out for me, I know what it is. What does a blue-collar worker make today in this culture? Twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars. This is the value of the oil that she pours out on Jesus' head and upon his feet. And she does it without the slightest hesitation. There's no hand wringing over it, no hesitation at all. It's the only thing in her heart that could communicate the greatness of her love for Jesus. And I think it's one of the most beautiful and costly expressions of worship toward God and all of the Bible. I love this passage of the Bible. I love to watch it in my mind. 
Notice that she then proceeded, having poured the oil on his head and on his feet, to wipe his feet with her hair. And again, this is characteristic of this Mary. Every time we see this Mary in the Bible, she is at one point or another, finds herself at the feet of Jesus. And that that meal preparation that Martha was making and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet that I spoke about earlier... The second time was when Lazarus had died and Jesus had come to Bethany to raise him from the dead. And when Mary heard that Jesus had come into the region of Bethany, she ran out to him. She threw herself down at his feet and said, Master, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And then the next time we see her in the Bible, here she is at Jesus' feet. The oil that she pours on Jesus is a scented oil. It has a fragrance. And because it had a fragrance, we're told in verse 3, the fragrance filled the entire house. We're told told then, following this great act of worship toward Jesus, that the disciples began to immediately complain about her actions. We're told here in uh, John's Gospel that Judas Iscariot was the one that was principally behind it. But in the other Gospels, we also learn that the other 11 disciples, ultimately to become the apostles, were carried away in his complaint, and they began to complain the same thing also. And Judas considered what Mary had done, what he had just witnessed. He watched her do this whole thing, and he declared it to be a waste. He watched that her open up that alabaster alabaster uh, container to pour what represented tens of thousands of dollars in wealth and value and to pour it out on Jesus' feet. And, and he looked at it and said, this is a complete waste and suggested that the oil might have been put to a much better use by selling it and then giving the money to the poor. We're told in Matthew's Gospel of all of the disciples that when they saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? The word indignant in Matthew's Gospel, describing their reaction, it means to be greatly displeased. It means to be oppressed in the mind. They watched Mary come up to Jesus. They watched her break the lid off of that that container of oil they watched her pour that oil out on his head and on his feet and while they watched it it hurt their brain as they watched that happen it also means to be grieved to be resentful to the point of pain it hurt them inside and out to watch Mary do what she did. It literally pained them watching what she did. And in their mind it was a waste, a total waste like throwing it away. They viewed Mary's actions as just a useless squandering of something of great value. That's how they viewed it. These guys, all except Judas, are going to become the twelve apostles And that's how they viewed this act of worship by Mary toward Jesus. 
The real motive, we're told here, behind Judas' complaint was not a genuine concern for the poor. He had no concern for the poor. He was a treasure for the group. He held the money box for the group. And all he could think about was 300 denarii put in this money box. Do you know how much you can pilfer from 300 denarii and not have it be missed? All he could think about was the jackpot that he had missed in being able to steal. It's interesting to me that Jesus allowed Judas to be the treasurer of the group, knowing that he was a thief. That fascinates me. He knew he's the least trustworthy of the whole group to be handling that money. And he lets Judas be the treasurer of the group. I think that Jesus gives everyone enough rope to either do something good with it or to hang ourselves with it. He gives every one of us an equal opportunity to do good or to do bad. And then our hearts are exposed by what we end up doing. No one will ultimately stand before the judgment seat, not in terms of heaven and hell, but in terms of reward, and say to Jesus, you never gave me an equal opportunity to make something of my life or to do something great with my life or to be used by you in a wonderful way. Everyone is given an opportunity to do that. One of the lessons that I think that we learn here, and it's an important one, is that oftentimes the most spiritual and certainly the most spiritually insightful people among God's people are not necessarily its leaders. They can be, but not always are they. There are Marys, there are others that have a greater sensitivity toward God and the things of God than even leaders sometimes have. She, her heart was way more in tune with the heart of Jesus and what he was going through than any of these twelve were tuned into it. I think we also learn that we cannot expect the greatness of our love for the Lord and uh, even the most beautiful expressions of our love for the Lord to be appreciated, fully appreciated by anyone but the Lord. Rarely are they appreciated by others. Certainly not very often by those who don't know the Lord yet. How many people look at you as a Christian and if the truth were made known, they think you are completely wasting your life as a Christian? They pity us. They pity what we miss. They pity the parties that we don't go to, the movies that we don't end up ingesting into our minds and into our spirits. They pity all of these things that we don't get in, involved in and all. And they look and it's just, they're just absolutely wasting their life. You go to church every week? Don't you need like a week to recover? Between appearances, you go to church how many times a week? You listen to what kind of music? Tell me, is that that's praise music? Is that what it is? You read your Bible and you pray every day? 
You teach a children's church class at your school and you're eager to get at your church and you're eager to get back from vacation so that you don't miss the opportunity to do it. You're becoming a missionary to where? To Oakdale? You're crazy. (laughs) And the world can think we're wasting our lives. And I understand it. I knew what it was before I came to know the Lord to look at Christians and to think what they are missing. But you look here at Mary and and Mary knows better. She knows she's not missing anything. The world thinks we're wasting our lives because how we live it is an expression of our love for the Lord. But we know we're not missing anything. We're living the best life a human being can live in this fallen world. It can sometimes be especially hurtful when those who are Christians consider our love for the Lord and our zeal for the Lord to be extreme or to be a waste or they don't understand it. Or someone takes your side and says, come on, brother, I, I'm worried about you. How you're spending your life here. I mean, you're just a little too focused on, on the Lord and all. I mean, there's a lot of other things out there to get involved in and to do and to be. And, you know, you're, I think you're, you're in danger of becoming so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And essentially, that's the accusation that they're making against Mary here. That all that self-sacrificial time spent worshiping Jesus and sitting at, at, at His feet, it's okay, but there's more important things to do like feeding the poor. And they lay a guilt trip on Mary just like they do on Mary's today. I think about how humiliating this must have been for Mary. She's taken the most valuable thing that she owns in life. She didn't do it for anybody else but Jesus. And she quietly attempts to bless him prior to his death. And then they make a public issue out of it. And they publicly humiliate her and make her feel a fool for what it is that she has just done for the Lord. Notice that Jesus immediately and forcefully comes to Mary's defense in verses 7 and 8. And the first thing out of his mouth is, he said, let her alone. Do you know what this means literally in the original language? It means, let her alone. Imagine from the mouth of Jesus to the big 12, let her alone. Alone. We could translate it just as equally in the vernacular of, of our day. Back off. Let it go. Drop it. And that's what he's saying to her. It's the kind of thing that somebody says to a bunch of bullies who are ganging up on somebody. No worship directed toward Jesus is a waste. There isn't anything we can offer him that he isn't worthy of and more. Jesus then declared to them, she has kept this for the day of my burial. Jesus understood the motive behind 
her pouring this oil out uh, upon him. She was trying to do something to, for him that she, they didn't understand anything about. Sometimes you go to a funeral service. They're called memorial services or coronation services for Christians. But you'll go to this kind of a service And very often during the eulogy section of that service where people are getting up and they're sharing about someone who has just died, typically someone who is very close to the person that's just died, even if that person has gone on into heaven. And they'll be weeping or they'll be choking up and all of the emotion right on the surface and they'll exhort us as we're listening to them speak and they'll they'll exhort us to... Make sure that you hug the people that you love before they die. Make sure you say, I love you to them while you still can this side of eternity. Make sure you hug them while you still can. I'll tell you, every time I hear that, and I've heard it many, many times, it always searches me once again. I go home and I hug my wife and I kiss my wife. I'll call my daughters or something, you know. And I take it to heart. And that's exactly what is going on here in in Mary's uh, life. Mary decided that she didn't want to wait until Jesus was dead to pour the oil out on him as an expression of her love. She still wanted to do it while he was still alive. So that's what she does. While all of these warnings that Jesus gave to the disciples of His coming crucifixion seemed to go over all of their heads, Mary was listening to what He said, took it seriously, and said, I'm going to bless Him and anoint Him for burial, express my love to Him before He dies. Jesus said, The poor you have with Me always, but Me you do not have always. Jesus was not in any way minimizing the importance of ministry to the poor. You take any religious system, take any religion, take any non-religious organizations or systems in the history of the world, and I would venture to guess you could put all of them together in human history, certainly in the last 2,000 years, and all of them together would not even begin to approach what has been done for the poor all around this world in the name of Christ and because of Christ. No one understood this to mean that Jesus was minimizing the importance of ministry to the poor. He was simply declaring that the poor are always going to be around. There will always be an opportunity to do good in His name to the poor but that he was not going to be, Mary would not always have this opportunity to pour this oil upon him. I'd like you to notice very carefully with me the actions of Mary in verse 3. Her anointing of Jesus' head with oil, as Matthew tells us, was not unusual in that culture. Her anointing of Jesus' feet with that oil was not unusual in that culture. But what is highly unusual here is the fact that Mary then purposely wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. 
A towel was available to her, but she didn't want a towel. Any woman that is going to come and brings the oil that is worth tens of thousands of dollars to pour on the head of, of Jesus, if she wants to bring a towel, she's going to bring a towel. This is a person who thinks things through. She could have asked for a towel. She doesn't want a towel. And using her hair as a towel, she deliberately takes the fragrance of Jesus upon herself. And it's very clear in her actions that she desired that there would be a fragrance or an afterglow left upon her life as a result of her time spent at His feet, spent in worshiping Him. And that she would then carry that fragrance upon her life long after her time at Jesus' feet had ceased. The application to us is plain, but it's very, very important. Just as Mary took on the fragrance of Christ by spending time at His feet and worshiping at His feet, the Bible teaches that each one of us as Christians take on an unmistakable, undeniable, spiritual aroma upon our lives as a result of spending time at His feet. As we read our Bibles in the morning, not as some academic activity, but to get to know the God of this Bible more richly. To read it in fellowship with Him, in communion with Him, in conversation with Him. As we begin the day in prayer with God, talking over with Him anything and everything about our lives and those that we care about, sorting through the day that lays out ahead with Him, talking it over with Him about what's going to come at 10 o'clock and noon and 3 o'clock and 7 o'clock, and Lord, what do I do here? And what do you want me to do here? And Lord, this person's a very difficult person to be with. I'm going to be with them for a half an hour appointment. I want to determine now between you and I how I'm going to conduct myself in that meeting and all of that kind of thing that happens with the Lord and praying to Him and then lifting up praise and thanksgiving and maybe even a worship song to Him in that time with Him to start the day or any time throughout the day. There's a spiritual afterglow, a spiritual something that is left upon our lives as a result. There is a spiritual scent, an undeniable scent that is in evidence that we began the day. In that place, there's a spiritual afterglow. The Apostle Paul spoke of it very specifically. He even gave the fragrance a name. He called it the fragrance of Christ. Here's what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His, that is, God's knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other the aroma of life to life. 
and who is sufficient for these things. Phillips translates it this way. I think you'll like it. He said, thanks be to God who leads us wherever we are on Christ's triumphant way and makes our knowledge of Him. And the word knowledge there is gnosis. We get our word gnosko from it. The word means a knowledge that comes by experience. He is talking about experiential knowledge. It is talking about relationship. It is talking about the knowledge that we come to about God by spending time with Him. He said, and makes our knowledge of Him spread throughout the world like a lovely perfume. We Christians have the unmistakable scent of Christ, discernible alike to those who are being saved and to those who are heading for death. To the latter, it seems like the deathly smell of doom. And to the former, it has the refreshing fragrance of life itself. I think it is wonderful to realize that as we experience fellowship with the Lord each day, hopefully to begin the day, in the reading of the Word of God, in prayer, in talking things over with the Lord, in worshiping the Lord, and then Him making that time whatever He wants to make it on top of whatever we bring to it that there is a very real and spiritual fragrance that comes upon our lives as a result that will be undeniable to every person that we, we then run into for the rest of the day. You ever walked into a room where someone is wearing a very beautiful fragrance? Impossible on the physical level to ignore it. Impossible not to recognize the fragrance that someone is wearing. And the same thing is true spiritually of the spiritual fragrance that we wear as an afterglow of time spent worshiping the Lord. It is impossible to ignore. Impossible not to notice upon the lives of those who choose to wear it each day. Now don't raise your hands. But how many of you know. That there is a different fragrance. Or a different vibe. That emanates off of our lives. On days. When we don't begin the day. At Jesus' feet. And on days. When we do begin the day. On Jesus, at Jesus' feet. There are two entirely different aromas that come forth from our life in the course of the day. And people recognize it. I think that once you've walked with the Lord for a while, it becomes very, very easy to spot those that have taken on the fragrance of Christ to start that day and those who are working off of a three-day-old fragrance. It's like deodorant. It doesn't... It, it fades... Or somebody working off of week-old or month-old fragrance. We have a way of becoming kind of a stinkorama because the flesh begins to overwhelm the fragrance of Christ.
And when we move away from receiving that fragrance each day from the Lord, something, we're going to wear something. Everybody wears some fragrance spiritually in this world, so to speak. If it isn't the fragrance of Christ, and it's been a while since, you know, we've begun the day with the fragrance of Christ being applied to our lives, or we miss a day or two or three, pretty soon the fragrance is active, willful sin. A judgmental spirit toward everyone we run into. Anger. Impatience with people. Bitterness against people, pride, frustration, rebellion, greed. All of these things can emanate from a child of God. But when they do, it's an indication that we need to return to Jesus' feet and fellowship with Him and allow His fragrance to once again dominate our lives. You see, this fragrance is a borrowed Fragrance. I think of Moses in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus where he was the only one for a time before the establishment of the priesthood that went into the tent of meeting to meet with the Lord. And when he would go into that tent to meet with the Lord, as the Bible says, face to face, intimate, unveiled fellowship with God. When he would then leave that tent of meeting, because it was a place to meet with God, the Bible says that he wore an afterglow of the experience. His face literally and physically glowed as a result of having spent time with the Lord. And as he would leave that place, then the people noticed that he had this afterglow. But what was characteristic of that particular afterglow is that it would begin to fade. And we're told that Moses took his veil and he would put it over his face so that the fading of that that glow would not be discernible to the people until he went back into the tabernacle once again, had that face-to-face experience with God, then received from God that afterglow of, of, of fellowship with him and then to head out once again. And that, that beautiful afterglow that he had was an afterglow that would fade and it had to be renewed. And Paul used all of this as an example of how we need to renew that spiritual glow in our lives as Christians and how to do it. And he put it this way in Second Corinthians chapter 3. He said, said, but we all, with unveiled face, face face-to-face relationship with God because of Jesus, beholding as it were in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's passive. That's something that happens to us. We're being transformed into the same image, that is the image of God, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. And Paul is saying, when we spend time with God, there is an afterglow, there is that fragrance that we wear as a result. Can't spend time with Him without it happening. 
And this passage is to me one of the most beautiful pictures of the powerful effect that our quiet time, our devotional time has upon our lives. I like to be able to get up from my time spent with the Lord, and I know I speak for you also. I like this imagery. I'll carry it all the way into heaven as God will keep it in my remembrance. But the imagery of realizing when I get up out of the chair in the morning where I have my devotional time with the Lord, that there is a fragrance that is now on my life as a result of that time, that I now have the privilege, the fragrance of Christ, of being able to now carry into this world that I live in. Our time spent at Jesus' feet, it blesses Jesus, it certainly blesses us, but it also impacts and blesses others in every environment that we enter into subsequent to that time spent with the Lord. It's so real, and it's so true, and it is so beautiful. I love the imagery, and I hope if you haven't heard this before, it becomes an imagery that blesses you in your home. Some people rise up from their quiet time and they don't leave the home, but their home will be filled with the fragrance of that time spent with the Lord. Some will go into very high, intense, demanding jobs. Some will go into jobs that are very mundane and very boring. Some will go to school. Some will go here. Some will go there. But to realize, I am taking something that will be noticed as being different from the scent of this world by all that I come into contact with today. And again, that it's our privilege to do so. Now, it doesn't mean everyone will appreciate it. Because as Paul talked about the diffusing of that fragrance, some people smell the fragrance, they see the difference of the life, they don't like it. And so they react in one way. Someone else reacts in a different way, the other end of the spectrum. It's the price of wearing the fragrance. Not everyone is going to like the fragrance. If you sit here this morning, and someone might say, you know, my life stinks. If you're a Christian, I think the first place, if I were to make that assessment of my life, the first thing I would do is I would stop and I would reassess my time spent at Jesus' feet because everything flows out of that. Christianity, and you can't say it often enough, Christianity is a relationship. It's a relationship. And that time spent individually with the Lord is the single most important thing that we will do to nurture our relationship with the Lord. It is a relationship that we've been called to. And one of the things that the Lord will do in each of our lives, I don't think you can beat a single Christian. I can't yell at you enough. I couldn't spit at you enough. 
and have veins coming out of my neck and all those kinds. You can't, you can't yell people into the, this kind of consistency in their, their Christian life in this area. But one of the beautiful things about the Holy Spirit is He will never let us rest. And I mean that in a wonderful way. Until that time each day spent with Jesus becomes the single most important thing in our life. And God is faithful to make it that. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, I am happy to let you know there's another fragrance on the shelf to choose from than the stinky old self you are. Now that's offensive to some people. But that's my way. <laughs> the flesh is stinky. But there comes a point in people's lives where they say, I don't, I don't like who I am. I don't like what I am. I don't like the influence that I have on other people. I don't like what I bring to my children. I don't like what I bring to my marriage. I don't like what I bring to work. I don't like what I bring to my home. I don't like what I bring to any environment or any relationship in my life. I want to be something. I know there's something higher. I know there's something better. I know there's another fragrance. I want to be a different kind of person in life. I want to be, have a different kind of influence. And the good news for you is there is another fragrance. And it's the fragrance of Christ. And that fragrance is introduced into your life as you make Him your Savior this morning. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they're going to be wearing a badge that says, Pierce, you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with Christ today. And then all that is found in that relationship. And give you a Bible. And give you literature to help you get started. Not in a mechanical, religious experience but to help you get started in a very real, personal relationship with God this morning. And it's all there for the asking. And it's all there for the receiving. If you need prayer for anything, these same men and women would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's stand together and we'll pray now.